Welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast that's a platform for mothers who are artists and creatives to share the joys and issues they've encountered while continuing to make art. Regular themes we explore include the day-to-day juggle, how mothers' work is influenced by their children, mum guilt, how mums give themselves time to create within the role of mothering, and the value that mothers and others place on their artistic selves. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter, and a mum of two boys from regional South Australia. You can find links to my guests and topics we discuss in the show notes, together with music played, how to get in touch, and a link to join our lively and supportive community on Instagram. The Art of Being a Mum acknowledges the Boendick people as the traditional owners of the land which this podcast is recorded on. Thanks so much for joining me. Today I present a special Father's Day episode to mark the occasion in the US, Canada and the United Kingdom. It is always interesting on these occasions to get the male parent perspective on things. I think it's something that many of us are interested in and it certainly comes up as a topic in many of my chats with mums. My guest for this special episode is John Cook. He's from Connecticut in the USA. John is a conductor, musician, music educator, an accompanist, and a dad of two girls. John started playing the piano at age five. He played the trumpet in a band, sang in choirs, grew up going to the theater, opera, and to concerts. And even though his parents weren't musical, he was exposed to the arts from a young age. In school, he sang in the choir and played in the band and he dreamt of going on to study to be a music teacher, as well as holding on to the desire to be a performer in his own right. John went on to study degrees from Manhattanville College and the Manhattan School of Music, as well as postgraduate work from the Westminster Choir College, and he gained his master's in piano performance. John juggled being a professional musician with being a full-time teacher for many years, enjoying the grounding that being in the classroom brought him. John's career in academia has spanned 40 years. He has taught at Scarsdale High School, Summers High School, middle schools in Chappaqua, New Rochelle, Rye, and at the Anglo-American School in New York. In addition, he retired from his position as the Director of Choirs at Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York, in 2018, after 16 collective years there. John has a varied background as a musician and educator. As a conductor, he's conducted choral and orchestral ensembles in Europe, South America and the United States. He has performed at such prestigious venues as Carnegie Hall and Avery Fisher Hall, as well as in Salzburg, Austria, in Romania, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Helsinki, Finland and in Lucca in Italy. Active in musical theatre and opera, John has held positions with Music in the Alps International Festival in Austria, Opera Estate in Rome, Italy, Utopia Opera in New York, New York, among others, as well as musical director for countless musical theatre productions, both at the high school and college level. John is active as a coach, accompanist, pianist and guest conductor. He performs frequently with singers and chamber musicians and is currently a staff pianist for the Bronx Opera. I greatly appreciate John's openness and honesty throughout this chat and for allowing me to delve deep and ask the big questions. We also chat a lot about a shared passion of choral music, choral singing and music in general. 
I hope you enjoy. The music you'll hear throughout this week's episode is in the public domain and therefore is not subject to copyright. for joining me today John all the way from United States thanks so much for coming on thank you for having me and inviting me so whereabouts are you uh, over there I'm on I'm in the northeast um, I live in a town in the state of Connecticut about an hour's drive north of uh, New York City yeah right do you get to go to New York very often does your work take you there or do you travel <gasps> Um, yes, uh, it's not as easy a commute as I would I would like it anyway. But I I have gone um, to work in New York often because it is it is this, the center you know of all musical things and theatrical things here. Yeah, yeah. So on that, so you're a conductor, a musician yourself. You play the piano. Can you yeah. share with us, starting off with sort of how you got into what you've done with your life over the last okay. many years? Yeah. Many years. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I, I started uh, playing at a very young age. I was five when I started playing piano and was involved in um, a variety of musical things. I played the trumpet uh, in a band. Uh, I sang choirs. Um, we went to the theater. We went to concerts. So there was, a, even though my parents were not musical, uh, we were exposed to a great deal of music and the arts. Um, I went to a sort of an academic high school that had a, a terrific choir. Um, and so I latched into that as well as a, a, a good a band. And uh, going, I, with the thought of going uh, to music to study, to be a teacher, be a music teacher. Um, I had the experience of so many great music teachers, both in elementary school, music, uh, elementary school and um, high school. Uh, that I thought it was a, a worthy thing to do. And so I went to a small little suburban uh, liberal arts school in New York State. Uh, got a degree in, uh, in, in music education, but also did a lot of playing. Um, I had also learned the organ as, at a young age and played in churches yeah. and realized that, you know, the, the teaching piece was really important to me, but the music piece was was equally important mm. and so I, I tried to pursue both i got out of undergraduate school uh took a few years off and then decided i was going to get my master's in piano performance at the manhattan school of music in new york city mm-hmm. and um so at, at that point i was on, kind of on a track that i wanted to be a, a full-time performer but there was a part of me that just uh, couldn't accept sitting in a practice room for six or seven hours by yourself. I, I, I love a making music with other people, especially singers, but I also really love the classroom as well. And so I finished my master's and rather than hit the road and <laughs> play, um, I got a teaching job and um, tried to maintain both professions. Uh, did so for many 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 years it was tough to do uh 
you know, um, one of the things I think that I loved about teaching was that it really grounds you, you know, Monday morning comes in, the students come into your room. They don't care what performance you had on the weekend or how great you were. They could care less. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that. The fact that I could go out and, you know, and freelance and do what I thought were wonderful things. But in the morning I had to, I had to prove it to my students. They didn't want to hear about my exploits. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, maintaining a practice schedule while you're, you're full-time teaching, uh, then a parent, uh, you know, is, is challenging. Um, but, you know, I tried to do the best I, I, I could with it, and I have no complaints about the choices I make. I made during my life. Um, I retired from the teaching bit. I, I taught at um, a number of public secondary schools. Uh, the last one, a very, very good one in New York, Scarsdale High School. And I also taught for 15 years as a, I was the choral director at a small liberal arts music school also in the New York metropolitan area, uh, because choral and vocal was also very, very big. I mean, I love working with words. I love working with singers. Mm -hmm. And um, I retired and uh, I ended up freelancing before this pandemic hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then life changes again. Oh yeah, we we could have a whole another conversation about life. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> yeah, let's not. I've had enough of those. <laughs> oh dear. interested to speak to you because when I saw that you'd, you'd conducted not just um, orchestras but also vocal groups and, and choirs, um, I spent probably 20 years of my life um, singing in vocal groups and choirs and I just I absolutely loved, loved it so much. I learned so much from it and I thought I haven't spoken to another conductor I don't think ever, uh, only the conductor that conducted me for all that time um, and I just thought it would be really nice. Um, as part of this podcast, to indulge myself a little bit too. <laughs> Why not? It's your it's your game. <laughs> oh, I can do it, can't I? Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I spent years singing. Like at, at that time, like Kirby Shaw was really big. All his sort of mm -hmm. um, arrangements, and oh, it was just a great time. We sang. We were all female, so we were SSA or SSAA, and I was I'm an alto or a second alto, and I used to. Just, I don't know, just love that feeling of blending and um, changing your tone to suit people around you and listening at the same time as singing. It just taught me so much about working with other people and, I don't know, compromise. You know, it's not all about me. I'm not a soloist here. It's We're all working together. <laughs> the, the choral thing is just, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing bit of humanity. Mm. And I... Um, for one, when you mentioned, uh, you know, SSA or SAA women's groups, I, I, one of my favorite activities was to conduct women's groups because yeah. I almost felt like they invited me into their little 
thing, but the bonding that goes in a women's group and the sound, as you say, that, you know, the, how you, you really have to change a little bit of your, of your, your thought process. But when it happens, the, the energy in a women's group is unlike any performing group that I know of. And I, I, I love that. I, I probably miss that the most about not conducting is conducting women's groups. Yeah. But um, yeah, what you say is so is so true about choral groups. Um, and I think when a conductor is savvy enough to to know that it's not really just about the music, but it's also about the people, because the the force of the group shouldn't necessarily come from the the podium. It should come from within. Mm. And and if you can create that sort of atmosphere where they where the singers feel engaged and and part of this that they're not just being lectured mm. uh, it's it's a it's just an amazing feeling I, I i miss that i miss choral groups for yeah. sure yeah um yeah the buzz that you get like Ooh. we were like i'm in my 40s now so i started singing in that group when i was probably 14 and we always used to look around at each other and just we were just these individual kids and teenagers and as we grew up we kept thinking, how how do we sound so good? Because we'd look at each other and think, well, we're not like that good, you know what I mean, as individuals. But then when we'd sing together, it would just be this amazing sound. And we'd just think, I don't know, just the collective, you know, we'd just have this amazing energy. And and I was a, it was like you say, like a sort of a, it was a humbling experience, I think, to realise that there was things you could achieve that were greater than yourself and greater than mm -hmm. your own ego, I suppose. Um, yeah, it was just, when I look back on it now, I don't think I realised at the time how fortunate I was to have that um, experience and for such a long time with the same, roughly the same group of people. Um, yeah, oh, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. the, the, bond, the, you know, the bonding that happens in those groups is just amazing. It's like, you know, <clears throat> it, it doesn't happen in an all-males group and it doesn't, yeah. it certainly doesn't happen in a mixed group. Um, there is some bonding in a mixed group, but it just, for some reason, uh, women are much um, more able and capable of loosening some of the, the garbage that's around all of us. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I knew I could never, I could never get really that close to it because uh, of who I am. But um, it just was awesome to be around, and the way they treated each other, the way they backed each other, you know, uh, and and it, and it reflects in the sound. This, that's why this, the sum of its parts is more important than the individual mm. singer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the perfect description, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. You, I just, you, as you said that, it just reminded me of this moment um, when we were recording. We recorded a couple of albums um, back in the nineties. This is going back a while. And we had to travel to Adelaide to record it because our little town doesn't have any sort of capacity for recording that many people in one room at one time. Um, and we were doing this particular song. I can't remember. I think it was called Johnny Has Gone for a Soldier. It's, it was like a oh, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. really oh, amazing, amazing song. And the soloist was having a bit of trouble because she had to record it live while we were all recording. And so she was having a bit of trouble. I can't remember what parts or whatever. And our, our conductor took us aside and he said, we have to we have to keep doing this. I know we've done it a few times, but we have to keep doing it for Renee. And he basically gave us a, a choice. He said, we can go home now because it's the end of the day and we can come back and get it done the next day and stay an extra day. 
or we can stay here tonight, we can get it done and we can, you know, get Renee's solo through and, and, and we all went, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to stay here now and get it done. And, you know, like that, just support, get behind each other. Um, you know, it was just, and we wanted it to be good for her. We wanted her to have that experience as well and for her to sure. achieve what she wanted to, I suppose, as the soloist because, you know, it's it's important when you get a solo to do it justice for yourself, you know, how you want to present it. Yeah, so I could totally relate to that. And that's interesting to hear that um, in your experience that it's not something that happens with, with the men's group and the mixed group. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a visitor. It's okay. Just <laughs> Good night. Sweetheart. <laughs> All right, off you go, see you later. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. I, oh, I had to. <laughs> I had to, and some of the some of the things they pulled, especially <laughs> in concerts. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. My little one decided once she was going to mimic me conducting oh, from the audience. Oh God. Actually, I think she was better. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Anyway, got lots of laughs. Yeah, so people around it would have enjoyed it. But did you realize? Oh, yeah, did you start to realize at the time what was happening that she was doing that? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh god, it was right behind me. You know, because we were both. My wife was playing, and I was conducting. Yeah. it was a school concert, so it wasn't. You know, it's not Carnegie Hall. Yeah, but we had put them in a seat because we were sort of in the pit area, and. We put them in seats right behind us so that, you know, they, they wouldn't wander and they wouldn't, you know, be by themselves. Yeah. And so uh, because we were both occupied, mm. you know, here I'm doing these grand gestures. And all of a sudden I noticed that there, there's a mirror behind me doing the same <laughs> gestures and the audience <laughs> is laughing. Oh, that's so special, isn't it? Like, oh, I love that. That isn't awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you know, the title of, uh, at least, you know, the title of the, your, your podcast is having to do dealing with family and, and being a musician. Yeah. And that's a, that's a tough lift, you know, it is a tough lift. But when, when you have a moment like that, you know, then you realize that, you know, um, how, how special it is for also for the, for the children, you know, my children are still yeah. sort of involved in music, so it's yeah it's it's sort of validating i suppose then you you realize that they see what you're doing like they're, they're and mm. in a way they're probably so proud of you that's probably not the words a child would use but you know to to mimic you to to copy what you're doing you know that's what do they say flattery's the what's the word something's the biggest form yeah. of flattery i can't it's a bit early here for me to actually <laughs> it's too late for me <laughs> but you know what i mean like she or he, I'm sorry, might have, like, they were so, 
so right. caught up in what you were doing. So yes. yeah, I think that's a lovely story. I have two daughters. Um, one is 34 and the other is 32, 31, 31. Yep. Um, one lives in uh, northern New York State, almost by the Canadian border, the city of Rochester. She, uh, she's an opera director oh. and um, she does freelancing and works as an adjunct in some schools. Um, and the other is getting her master's in uh, information and library sciences in in New York. And she lives in Brooklyn. Yeah, right. Yeah, opera. That's that's a whole new world, isn't it? That's like compared to the choral world. Like it's, it's different, isn't it, the opera world? It is and it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, I... I Opera is a big piece of my my background, and um, frankly, I got into opera as a young person and musical theater before I got into choral music. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, I mean, some of the core, some of the opera choruses are are amazing piece of choral work, um, and you're also dealing with languages. You know, you're dealing with um, subtexts. Um, in some cases you know, uh, classic stories. Uh, um, I, 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 I know perhaps maybe people think that opera is uh, passe. I, I, I don't, I mean, what's happening, I don't know what's happening there, but what's happening here is a massive revolution uh, in um, librettos and people writing operas uh, and not just regurgitating the same mm. 25 year after year, but yeah. it's, um, I love it. You know, it's it's a combination really of great orchestral music, great choral music, and great solo music uh, mm. and theater. You know, yeah. what more could you have? Yeah, that's it. It ticks so many boxes, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And then there's yeah. and there's ballet too in some of them. Oh, so, yes. you know. I actually had um, the, uh, the episode I released just this week was with a dancer from the Australian Ballet, and I I recorded with her for almost three hours <laughs> because. <laughs> I couldn't stop talking about the music (laughs) and thank goodness she was kind enough to indulge me but I was just like I don't know but obviously as a musician I'm so enthralled by that part of of ballet and I just find it just the whole world of ballet is a mystery so it was lovely to for her to share a lot of those behind the scene things we all think it's a bit like that um, Black Swan movie but she assured me that it's not all like that some parts of it are but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> those, 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 they have it hard. They really have it hard because they have to make it early, uh, young. Yes. Uh, yeah. And 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 I think the physical there's a physical toll in music as well, but the physical toll on on dancers is is really in, intense. Oh yeah. So I think they have it much more difficult. Oh look, the way she was describing what they do, how like the days they're doing, they might be rehearsing one day and then performing that night, but they'll be doing perhaps um, they're not rehearsing the show they're doing that night anymore. They're learning the next one. 
And it's just like, not only would your brain be spinning, but your body is just under the pump, you know, sometimes six or seven days a week. And like when I was talking to her, I was like, I was trying not to be sound too daunted, but I was like, this sounds exhausting. Like, how do you guys actually do it? Like, <laughs> you know, and then to, to fit in having a family as well. Like how, how do you physically manage it all? It's just such a, I don't know, a really challenging world. Yeah. Um, I think, I think Broadway actors are, are similar in that, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I know a few and I had a few former students and their lives are just, it's not the rock star stuff that you think it is, that we all think that media thinks it is, yeah, yeah. you know, they're working eight nights a week. They can't really take time off because you don't know if the show's going to close. They're worried about when the next show comes. Mm -hmm. There's the physicality of it. They, they actually have masseuses and people backstage to, to deal with them and their, their ailments. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't exactly sound like, you know, rock star, movie star kind of thing. No, but they do it for the art. It's, su it's such hard work. And, that, and it makes you appreciate it when you see it. You think of if you, can, if you have an appreciation of what they've been through to be able to bring you what you're watching. Um, you just, you know, have such respect for these people and the work that they've done mm -hmm. and continue to do, so. mentioned before that your wife is also a musician what does what does she play or what does she do she um she was a pianist also mm -hmm. um and uh, a, a choral director she actually uh, choral directed in the schools uh, most her age group was mostly uh, here in the u.s grades six through eight mm -hmm. and and sometimes a little younger um and so you know we in one way we had a one where you sort of have an advantage because we were both on a school schedule, mm -hmm. uh, which helps in bringing up children. Um, in another way, uh, a disadvantage is that December, May, and June, you know, like some somebody was always out at night. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, trying to figure out who's picking the kids up, who's getting dinner, who's that sort of thing. But she, um, you know, I, I don't think she had, and I, I can say this, you know, we, we've been married, it'll be, it'll be 40, 40 years in May, but we, um, she didn't have that kind of burning uh, a, a passion to really want to, to play by herself. Mm -hmm. um, she was very comfortable and loved the classroom and uh, loved the whole element of the classroom. Uh, and she was choral, I think I said that. Um, and she was a really good teacher. She retired also. Uh, this is her first year of retirement. Um, you know, uh, she kind of bridged a little bit into that sort of that pandemic teaching and decided that this is not really what I signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so we did share a lot of music in the house. I mean, there was always music in the house. Somebody was always playing. And although we tried not to force our kids um, to be in music, it, you know, it just sort of happened. You know? <laughs> Sometimes you just can't help it. If, you, if you're surrounded by it, it's like, yeah. it just yeah. gets into you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, you feel the need to go up and conduct. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, dear. Is that that daughter that, that imitated you? Is that the daughter that is the opera director? No, actually it's not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. She, uh, she was the younger, she's the younger uh, daughter, and she was very, um, as a child growing up, how can I say, um, spicy, <laughs> spunky, yeah. uh, still is a little bit. Um, she played, actually, she played the viola um, through school and was quite good, um, but again, did not have that, you know, there's, there's a certain there's a certain amount of mania and I might even say sickness that you need to have to, mm. to, to kind of keep that thing going. And neither girls, although they love music and they were, they're quite good at it. They just didn't have that to go, to go beyond that, which is just fine. You know, it's not, um, but um, no, she never, uh, she played a few decent orchestras and, you know, we used to play together. Sometimes I would accompany her if she asked me and, um, but no, never took up the baton except for that one time. <laughs> Maybe she read the critics. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I love that story. That is a really good story. So in that, that you, you've, your wife and yourself are, are sort of juggling the, the parenting role and, and trying to do your music, was that, oh, I don't know, I had a word it, was it ever sort of a, was it, was it hard to sort of juggle who was going to get to do certain things? Were there ever sort of clashes where it was like, we do both try to do the same thing, like that, that, that experience where you had to take the, the girls with you? Was there a lot of that sort of stuff where you're both having to be out and bringing the, the children with you? I would say there was a little angst on, on who's, you know, and if, but I, I, I could, I, we were very good to each other and that we communicated, you know, mm -hmm. and we knew what, what needed to be done. So like if I was doing a show, yeah. that pretty much meant like for the last 10 days, I was done, I, you know, like, um, and if she was doing a show, was the same thing mm -hmm. you know like there's any i mean you know you might say geez you know I, I, I. but with the with the onset of digital calendars <laughs> <laughs> makes things a lot easier because now all of a sudden everything is like in front of you and yeah. everything she has is in front of me and vice versa 
although we didn't have that when, the, when, the, when our, our daughters were growing up, but um, it helped being in a school schedule for sure. You know, it, where it would sometimes be is if I had extra stuff, if I was doing extra freelance things on the weekends or sometimes, you know, I did a few festivals over the uh, festival of the summer, which took me away for a bunch of time. There were maybe there, there was a little friction there, but um, yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I think with some of that, and I, I know what, you, what you're driving at um, with the question, I think, is that, you know, like sometimes, well, it, it is, you know, like somebody, somebody gives up a portion of their thing yeah. for the house, the household, yeah. and the yeah. other person doesn't. And um, in a sense, I kind of did that, but not really, because I still was teaching. My main focus was teaching and playing in church. And my wife's focus was teaching, completely teaching. Um, so it's not like anybody anybody asked somebody else to do something extraordinary so that you could make it big at the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, I know people would, who have who've had to do that, and, you know, that causes great tension and then sometimes they even split up for that mm. but um we did not have to deal with that and i think that's part of the again going back to what i originally said the, the grounding that teaching gives you um really uh negates some of that yeah yeah no thank you for indulging that question it's sort of you know i'm appreciative of you giving me your time as as the man in the the relationship to how you deal with that and how that makes you feel you know what I mean it's like I think on my show we do talk a lot about how women try to cope in a sometimes in, in a man's world and depending what sort of um art circle they might be in so I find it I just you know in a kind and respectful way to hear what the other side has to say you know what I mean <laughs> yeah no I, I you know and I think I think one of the problems is that there isn't enough dialogue about that uh it's something that that really people don't think about when when they do get married or when they have children. Is that okay? Uh, and perhaps, perhaps it certainly is better than what it was when I was growing up, where you know there were there were definitely roles carved out. Mm-hmm. You know, my father went out to work. My mother stayed home. She did go out to work sometimes. But the one thing I did learn from my father, because he worked in a restaurant business, he cooked. And so to me, that was never something that was, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Mm. As a matter of fact, that, that in some ways for me, if I'm going to the market and buying stuff and cooking it, that's a real, a a release valve. I mean, I I actually really enjoy doing that. Yeah. Um, And so I I think that the problems occur when you don't communicate. And Mm. I, and I think there are certain things that I know my wife does that other people might think are so-called manly things to do because I don't like doing them and I'm not very good at them. Uh, and there are other things that I do that my, some people might say are not manly kinds of things. And I don't care what they think. I also think that a lot of those, those, um, those those boundaries are changing they, mm. they certainly change you know yeah. uh, and who you know who would not want to be involved with rearing your children being around your children i mean i can't imagine why you'd want to why why'd you have them anyway so that somebody you, you, uh, yeah, yeah i used to look forward to when when um when they were young and i did this once by accident and um 
I would take a day off from school in December after my concerts were done. I'd pull them out of school and I'd take them to Manhattan. And the first, my wife was out doing a concert and I was home with the girls, got Chinese takeout, or I should say carry out, <laughs> and um, decided to rent the film Breakfast at Tiffany's, which they'd never seen before. Yeah. And so they, well, I was glad they fell in love with it. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. So they wanted to go have <laughs> breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. I took the day off. We went into Manhattan. We sat and stood in front of Tiffany's with a bagel or whatever it was, <laughs> and then went to the tree. And it just, it was such an amazing day that I, I ended up doing that for maybe four or five years after that. Not necessarily going to Tiffany's, but other parts of Manhattan at the time with the two of them. And, uh, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I bet they remember those like really special memories too. It's part of their childhood. Yeah. 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 They do actually. Yeah. That's yeah. lovely. But I think you're right though. It's like the gender stereotypes, the gender roles are, are being challenged, which is awesome. Um, I, I don't think I could have had this conversation, you know, in my dad's era, <laughs> it would have just been, what are you talking about? Like, why is, why is this even a question? This is, this is not, what happens you know what I mean it's just things are changing and that that's awesome for everybody because that's the thing like just because like I spoke to a dad for this um, podcast last year for the Father's Day episode and he said just because I'm the dad why why is it assumed that I'm the one that has to leave the house and go and work why can't I be the one that stays with my children because I love my children why wouldn't I want to stay with my children so you know everyone's the the mind shift the mindset is shifting with every generation and which is awesome I think it's really good. Um, yeah, I, I I almost wish it would shift a little faster here in the United States. Yeah, um, yeah. but things don't shift so fast here, <laughs> as I'm sure you can see. to The Art of Being a Mum with my mum, Alison Newman. So you talk about communication being really important. Did you, at that time when you were thinking about starting your family, was that a discussion that your wife and yourself had of how's this going to work with our careers and what we want to keep trying to do musically? Was that, was that something that happened then? Hmm. <laughs> No, <laughs> we, uh, we were married for seven years before we had our first born mm -hmm. and had a, just a grand time flitting around, going into the city, going to Europe. Um, uh, I, I, I loved our lifestyle. <laughs> I really didn't want it to change. Yeah. Um, and, but I knew having a child was, uh, was really important to my wife. And, um, I'm not sure it, it was that important to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kept, I wouldn't say resist, but you know, um, you know, the usual, well, you know, we don't have money, we don't have a house, you know, that sort of thing. And then finally, 
I would, I would, that, that's part, that's part, I assume that's to be part of the package. So I did want to go back on my word. I was frightened, frankly, to be really honest. Uh, I thought that my entire life would change completely. Um, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, both girls were C-section, so my wife was in a hospital. The first one, I remember uh, she was in the hospital and I came home from visiting and I was by myself and I remember sitting with a very large glass of wine <laughs> watching it was a European cable channel that used to we used to be able to get that doesn't exist I don't think it exists anymore watching the Mozart piano concerto in D minor yeah. and thinking you know I'll never play that again oh. you know yeah. and I was, and I'd, I'm sure most of it was just the exhaustion Mm. Of the, and of the, the shock of, of it too, probably. And the, just and so. the shock of it, you know, yeah. Um, but you know, uh, I woke up the next day, went back to the hospital, you know, and I—I I was the first one to actually hold her. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, she was a little thing, you know, and uh, and and that whole thought process at that point it didn't matter anymore, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, I, but I also do remember playing a recital like the week after or like 10 days after being absolutely exhausted. Yeah. And that's basically that what I, I, I realized that my life was going to be is it was just going to, it wasn't going to be that sort of um, picture perfect. I can go and do a gig someplace and I'm prepared and I'm rested and I'm fired up. It's just basically, let me stay awake long enough to finish it and then go home and crash. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, when I realized that my life would not change much, I mean, it does change, of course, you know, and it has to change, but when it, it would not change, or at least what, what I felt was important in my life, I, um, she was she was an infant and i remember watching a broadcast of um, a live broadcast from i guess the Met metropolitan opera of mozart's magic flute mm -hmm. and emily was on the floor with me just before bed and it got to the point where the queen of the night sings this put her to bed. I finished watching the thing the next morning, you know, the next day after school, I come home and she's kind of like trying to sing it. Oh, so oh. I went out and got a boom box. Yeah. I bought a highlights CD of the magic flute <laughs> and that was it. Now I realized oh. uh, she has, she has the disease. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how wonderful. That is awesome. Yeah, and they've always been, you know, we've schlepped them to so many different, not only school performances, but also stuff that we are being close to Manhattan, uh, to New York. Uh, they've seen a lot of stuff. So, but, you know, I, I think at that point, I realized that, you know, this, these two things can commingle.
I was going to ask you, as you were talking about that, was you realised that you didn't have to give up one thing to have the other. It's that your music and your ch- your children could actually, like you said, coexist. Mm-hmm. That would have been a really relieving moment, I would have thought, that you sort of would have thought, oh, I'm not going to lose it all. I'm not going to have to, you know, give up something. Yeah, no, yeah, it was. You know, the the, the what it did impress upon me is that I was going to have to work harder to maintain it. Yeah, right. And sometimes I couldn't maintain it the way I would want to, you know, like I couldn't get to a piano to practice or I couldn't, I had to turn down something, but I would have to be, uh, it would be more on my shoulders to try to, to balance those two things. Like, you know, not, not practicing when they're asleep and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see how it would have been a very difficult set of choices for somebody else to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I saw them as, you know, once I saw them, it was not a difficult choice anymore. You know, the, mm. the, as much as I love music, uh, they don't take, that doesn't take the place of my children, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's something that everyone's um, afraid of when, when you, you, you sort of presented with this prospect of having a child and your life completely changing, you have this fear of what's my life going to look like. Off you go. Go on, go see bud, please. Uh, you'll be asleep when I come out. So I'm so sorry. Well, that just proves it, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it? Just, it just proves it. It's just that you know, and I just sort of I just have to go go with the flow of it all, and yeah. because in the end, to me, it doesn't matter. Yeah. The he's what matters. Yeah. You know, whether I have to wait ten minutes or not, that doesn't matter. You know, and if it does, and if it did matter, then then I'm an idiot, you know, because <laughs> oh, that, that is more, that's what's more important at, at that at, at that point. And yeah. balancing all of that, uh, I, bravo, you know, that's got to be hard for what you're doing because you're in your house. It's not like you can go someplace else. It is. It is challenging. But the thing that I like to remind myself is that he does have two parents and there's a time and place for each parent to have what they need because I think it's really important for you to be filled up yourself, have your cup filled up especially if you, you know, I think you have to be nurtured yourself before you can nurture someone else. I think it's really important um, to do that. And that's why I've never stopped singing, never stopped creating through having both kids, through both pregnancies. It's like, I think it's just a part of who you are and that identity doesn't change just because you become a parent. That part of your life's not going to just you know, go up in smoke, you're all of a sudden not going to be a creative person just because you're a parent, you know, it's yeah. there. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, and that, that certainly is not, you know, your parents or my parents reality. They had to give up things uh, that they mo- may have wanted to do mm. for that. But uh, and I, I, I feel bad for that. You know, that that, that was the case then. Yeah. Um, but it's not now. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's also what makes um, creative people also want to do stuff because they, it's almost, I don't want to say they want to prove a point that it can be done, but it's like you've seen how perhaps your parent your parents gave up stuff that they wanted to do and maybe that doesn't feel right for you. You don't, and because society's changed, you have those opportunities, so you're going to take them, I suppose. That's, I guess that's a way of trying to describe it. <laughs> 
again, not to, to delve into the, into politics, but I think one of the things that's that's difficult here in the United States is that we don't have um, uh, daycare. You know, daycare is all private. Yeah. And so, you know, there is no infrastructure for, we were fortunate that we, we made enough money for both of us to go out working and somebody was watching the children. And then when they went to school, somebody wouldn't, you know, yeah. but I, I remember moving into this house now where we were, the biggest issue wasn't whether we can afford this, was whether we were gonna be able to find daycare that was appropriate for both girls. Yeah. And um, that that piece, I think, helps to be able to share the responsibility and for people to be able to say, OK, I, I, I can keep a piece of myself and still be a parent and, and, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. But um, I feel so awful, you know, even it was highlighted here, certainly during the pandemic when daycare centers were shut down mm -hmm. and the people who really need that, you know, the working class or the poor, um, have to sacrifice going to work with having their kids at home. Uh, yeah. And again, I, I, I don't want to, well, no, I actually, I don't mind delving in politics because I, I, I'm, I'm old enough to have seen the world spin a few times. Mm -hmm. um, and my only hope for this country, uh, you know, we label everything, uh, is to make it easier for people to have families and to go to work and to have their their dreams that we could we could have that all yeah it's interesting isn't it like a lot of it comes down to circumstance like you can have all the dreams in the world but if you physically cannot do it for whatever constraint that's it it has to it has to stop doesn't it Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, I spent nine years working in childcare here in Australia, and I'd recently just resigned from that job a couple of weeks ago. And and they desperately, we need an overhaul here desperately. Um, the same thing during COVID. We didn't get shut down, but the, the, the limitations put on access to childcare were greatly um, changed. So if only if you were an essential worker, you were allowed to use childcare. So they're basically wow. deciding whose job was important enough to be able to have childcare, which I thought was pretty ordinary. And a lot of parents obviously were not happy with that. They would ring us and say, well, what, why isn't my job important enough? Who decides? You know, the government's decided, but obviously the centres, the person who answers the phone is the one who's copying that question and that's not a question they can answer. But that's how people feel and I can understand that. I don't think it's it's not a fair thing to, to put on people to decide you're, whether you're important enough in in this community in in our country, I don't know. It was just a bit of a mess, to be honest. But anyway. yeah, I, well, yeah, you know, there's an issue here too about uh, how birth rates are are, are going down. Mm. Well, if people are worried about having children because they can't work, of course, birth rates are going to go down. Yeah. You know, I but. Yeah. Um, yeah there's a whole thing that just reminded me I, I listened to a lot of bbc radio um and they were having a big thing on there the other month about china how they're now wanting people to have three children and yeah. um they they're saying well there's no infrastructure set up for mums to return to work there's no childcare. there's you know they don't have like nannies system like it's not a thing over there um so how can you expect people to return to work if you don't give them the the tools to be able to do it it's all well and good saying have three kids but it's like well hang on a sec i actually still want to work or need to work um 
Yeah. It's, it's well, and to also piggyback on your, you know, the point of our conversation is that that's that's a huge, a huge, huge um, issue for people who are in the arts about having family, you know, and also, you know, if somebody is a freelancer or, you know, let's say they're fortunate enough to have one of the, the big jobs, you know, orchestra full-time orchestra with health benefits and the, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Those things happen like your ballet dancer, they rehearse during the afternoon in the morning and they play at night. And usually they stay in the same hall all day long. So somebody's gotta be home. Yeah. Or there has to be some some accommodation for where do the kids go? Yeah. Um, that's only if you're, you're fortunate to be married to somebody who has that kind of a position. But most of the musicians I know, they're all, you know, they're either office temping someplace and they're, they're running out to do gigs at night and taking whatever comes along. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's certainly a lot harder for them than it ever was for us to, to, to try to bring a family. Mm. There's this whole, the, the gig economy, we call it over here, people who, the freelancers and, and that kind of stuff that they they suffered hugely through the pandemic because they didn't get um, the support from the government that other people did too. So that was a whole nother sort of cultural division of why why is some people worthy of receiving money from the government and some people aren't. And the, the arts just suffered so much. And that's something that I think half the reason why hopefully we'll have a change of government because people have realised that the sports kept going and the sports were supported and that there was all sorts of um, allowances made for them to travel through interstate to keep playing their football and whatever else they were playing but the arts just stopped and even at a local level there was no support so oh, I don't know that frustrates me but anyway we've got an election coming so we can do something about that you can do something about it yeah no I, I think it's it's endemic in Australian culture that the sport comes first sports the be all and end all and the arts are the poor cousin unfortunately but anyway <laughs> here too <laughs> yeah um it's yeah i don't i don't get it yeah well you know here just even in the schools parents were screaming about how their kids games were canceled that you know the colleges wouldn't come and see them kids play and they wouldn't get into college and scholarships and and so they ended up allowing indoor games like basketball when you couldn't sing in a, in a you know, you couldn't have a choir. Yeah. You know, what's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that singing, that singing thing really got us over here as well. <laughs> that was just really, yeah, yeah it was you'd, hard, have, right? you'd have 40,000 people sitting in a stadium watching a football match, but you couldn't gather together in a room and sing together. It's like, come on, just the, yeah, very frustrating. But anyway, hopefully that all that stuff's behind us now and we'll winch about something else right <laughs> the next uh, variant yeah oh god <laughs>
coming back to you as a conductor, I wanted to yeah. ask, and I haven't, I haven't um, asked you this previously, so I'm going to put you completely on the spot. So if you'd like to move on to something else and come back to this in a minute, that's fine. I wanted to ask you, what's your favourite piece to conduct and why? Oh. <laughs> Is that too hard of a question? Well, it, it, here's my usual stock answer when people say to me, what's your favorite composer or what's your favorite piece of music? Yeah. It's like saying, what's your favorite food? There's sometimes I like a plate of pasta. <laughs> There's sometimes I like a beautiful piece of grilled fish. Um, there are some times that I might even like pizza. Yeah, I don't really have. It's like there's a, a line from um, this the show Oklahoma uh, when uh, Will Parker asks Ado Annie, "Well, which guy do you like better?" And she says, "Whichever one I'm with." I try in conducting and playing to find, even if it's something that I don't may not connect with initially. I try to find something in it uh, that I can get my hook into it mm -hmm. and then expand out. Example, I resisted working, learning, conducting Carmina Burana for years and years and years. I just felt like it just, you know, it just seemed like some raucous piece of, you know. And then uh, this was my college position. They, ha they hired a new uh, pre uh, president who was of German descent. And he decided he wanted the choir to sing a few movements of Carmina Burana at his installation. Mm -hmm. Interesting choice, I would think, <laughs> especially with some of that text. Mm -hmm. So um, I felt like I really couldn't say no, mm -hmm. even though I, I didn't have the kind of forces to put that together. Yeah. So I sat and I studied it. Um, I chose some movements. I managed to get money out of them uh, to put it together. Yeah. And I did it. Um, and frankly, I enjoyed the rehearsal in it. I enjoyed the performance in it. Uh, so there's an example of something that I had absolutely no, and I knew I had, I should, I should do it because everybody does it. Yeah. I'm more of a lyricist. I mean, I love, I love, I love great text. Mm -hmm. I love uh, melody, but I also like complexity. Yeah. I would say probably my favorite thing to conduct is Bach. Yeah. Because I love puzzles. Yeah. Uh, those kinds of musical puzzles. But there's something, there's something tremendous about um, conducting Verity. Yeah. There's something tremendous. The one guy that, that scares me, <laughs> if I may be honest. Yeah. But it's probably not going to be broadcast in the United States, so it won't matter, right? Um, <laughs> Beethoven, I, and I know people would say, are you crazy? That's like the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. Beethoven to me is so dense and is a, one of those composers that I have to work really hard to get at the, the kernel of it. It, yeah. it just, it's not easy for me. It's not easy for me to play. It doesn't fit my hand well. Yeah, right. um, and it just, I look at the score and it's almost like, I look in a language that I, I don't understand. Mm. Yeah. 
I like to say I, I probably may have enjoyed it, um, but it's not my desert island kind of thing. I mean, I love listening to it, and I, obviously his place in music is, is amazing. Mm. To me, Mozart, Mozart operas, Mozart symphonies, um, choral works, wow. Uh, Pool and Glory is one of my favorite pieces. The Dorothy Requiem is another one of my favorite pieces. Uh, I've done the Foray Requiem a number of times, also one of my my, my favorites. I've I've tried to get my tried to get my wife to sign a piece of paper to tell that you know that it should be sung at my funeral. <laughs> yeah. But she would have to very carefully choose the soloists. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Pa Azu is just a. Aww. It's yeah. a challenge, you know, yeah. for, for a soprano. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's a hard question, but I, I don't know if I answered it fully. I also love those, you know, those small octavos, you know, those Renaissance music, uh, mm. choral music to me is just, uh, it's, it, it's ethereal. Um, I love the big British stuff, the Holst and Von Williams and... Um, Again, it's 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 sort of what what I, what I'm in at the moment. Um, uh, oddly, Mozart the Mozart Requiem is not one of my faves because mm. uh, it's not really Mozart, except for bits of it. Uh, I've done it, uh, I've enjoyed doing it, but it's not something that I would really um, it, it doesn't have the same spot in my my in my being as the, some of the French uh, choral works. Yeah. Um, symphonically, uh, Dvorak, I love, uh, but I, I also like to conduct contemporary music too. Um, and I, I find that to be um, interesting. I love playing contemporary music. Um, and for that very reason is that at least the way I work is I look big first mm -hmm. and then realize, oh my God, how am I going to redo this? <laughs> <laughs> and then I go back and just sort of take things in small chunks. And um, with contemporary music, there's, there's no preconceived motion to fall on. You know, you can't go to a recording. You can't go to, you can't read about it, mm. especially if it's brand new. I, I played... Yeah. Uh, there's a in Hartford, Connecticut. There was there's a festival every November. I, this is the first time I, I did it. It's called New New in November, and they basically put on one act operas, chamber operas written for piano, mm -hmm. um, five or six of them in a, in a in a setting. And so I played one of them, and it was fascinating. It was it was based on the um, an American young American composer from Austin, Texas based on the Pulse nightclub shooting in, in um, Florida. Yeah. Very powerful. And just so much fun to practice and dig into it. You know, you just try to get... And then once you finally get together with the other artists, uh, it, just, it just... It's like magic. And so I really... That I really enjoy. Something that has not been done before that I have to trust my own dial and, and research. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, because I know as, you know, doing choral music, it's sort of up to the conductor to interpret it and to present it in the way that they see fit, the way that they, you know, the tempo. Like there's always the guides there of what to do, but someone might put a pause somewhere else for dramatic effect or, you know, there's 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 room for your own added nuances, I guess. Um, is that something that you find exciting or daunting then if you know someone else has done it? Is it hard to put out of your mind, they did it like that, but I wanted to do it like this, or do, do, does that make sense? <laughs> no, 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 it makes great sense. It's a great question. Um, for one, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. If it's not in the score, I am not going to uh, muck around with the score much, unless, the big unless is, what can the group in front of me do? <laughs> I, I'm not a big believer on having this massive conceived idea of a work that they can't accomplish. So if it's a professional group, that's one thing, but if it's an amateur group or it's a school group or it's a church group, um, then what I, I try to look at what the score demands in terms of sound. And if they can't do it with perhaps the way that somebody else might do it, like speed, um, I'll do it with articulation to create that same effect. But to me, it makes no sense to try to to push a group to do something that you have, uh, you know, a, basically an academic scholastic idea of what it should sound like, and they can't do it. Mm, yeah. What's the sense? Yeah. So um, in terms of freely interpreting, I, I like to feel like I have some say on that but mostly my say on that especially if there's a choral work has to do with punctuation breathing uh text issues there's some composers who are very demanding in what they write and there's others that have their own like vaughn williams for one i mean he's his his writing has to sort of be interpreted because it it's not it doesn't really make any sense if you do exactly what he says right and i, I suspect it's because of the acoustic that he was writing for, um, that it was a, in a church and a very live acoustic. Mm -hmm. So sometimes things like the final ends of, of notes or phrases are kind of, you know, he puts a, a, a quarter note with an eighth note that's tied to it and a dot underneath that, which to me says, get rid of the tie, <laughs> especially if you're in a dry acoustic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I, I have a, I have a story that I, <laughs> I did the, uh, the Verdi Requiem in Romania about four years ago, four years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, choir was quite good. Solos were all, were all professional, but you know, like most of these kinds of places, they're all sort of stuck because you're not there for a long period of time. You basically float into the city, have a couple of piano rehearsals, address, you know, you meet the orchestra and then bang, off you go. So there's no time for me to pontificate on what I want. There's a spot at the end of the very Requiem where there's this huge crescendo and then it comes to subito piano. Basically impossible to do it the way he wrote it. And it's in the middle of, of a word. So I scoured 
various recordings and uh one of the recordings i got which which was a, com con a composer a conductor that was very uh influential in my in my view of conducting was robert shaw and who did an amazing very requiem he actually took a little bit of a loofed breath before that piano the whole thing went and then the, the subito piano perfect so i thought it was good for robert shaw it was good for me right <laughs> not in romania oh no Soprano gave me an issue with it she said wow and I said, well, you, can you make that super the piano without, without, and it turned into this fight. So in the end, okay, it wasn't a subito piano, uh, it wasn't a piano, <laughs> but it wasn't worth fighting because it just wasn't, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, I, I think, uh, and I, I probably, if I had more time, I probably would have insisted, mm. but my Romanian is not very good at <laughs> all in English, and I don't think she spoke English very well anyway. But that's the thing, like, you're, you're challenging cultural norms, that, and it's hard to break down those barriers or even question those barriers, um, certainly with a limited time frame, but even at all, I guess, if, you know, there's thousands yeah. of years of history and <laughs> that's what they're doing. Well, and, and also, it's, it's, it's also what the, what the norm is in that particular region mm, yeah right so to go back to the very requiem i did have an extensive choral rehearsal too few subject too few areas in a, in a very requiem and you know being sort of a, a pianist an organist a bach lover i mean i have a certain set way about fugues mm -hmm. and they sang both fugues like that was almost anathema to me. You know, it, you couldn't hear subjects. You could, it just was like this big mush and wash of sound. <laughs> and my first thought was, okay, so how far I'm going to go with this? Mm. I tried. They were terrific. They were so receptive. Actually, those two choruses were the best things in the entire performance. Yeah. Because I, I, they allowed me to break the paradigm yeah. that they yeah. had. Yeah. And, uh, and when they actually did it, it was just awesome. You know, so clean. It was you could hear every entrance and everything was shaded, and and they were a good choir to begin with. Yeah. But that's the difference. And then the, where the soprano was not used to that, she was used to getting whatever she wanted. Mm. And yeah. so, and she got it what she wanted. But, <laughs> but, so, um, I I think that that the score. It's not a museum piece, you know. It's a guide. And if you have enough, I don't think you should sway far so far from the score that it it it, it deviates from what the composer intended, because mm. um, that I don't think is right. Yeah. So yeah. you know, but to use the score and you then also to use your understanding and knowledge of what the the practice of the time was, what the idiosyncrasies of that particular composer was if you know them if it's a brand new thing then you know then you're going on you're not you're going on guesswork yeah. sometimes you're lucky enough to the composer there yeah. um and that's that's a long-winded way of answering your question about you know how do you how do you sort of attack a, a, mm -hmm. a score like that but i find it really 
daunting but yet fascinating to get like a clean score and thinking okay (laughs) (laughs) where are we going from here yeah no thanks i appreciate that but i'm throwing some questions at you that you you haven't had any warning over so i appreciate it (laughs) i'm a former teacher i can dish it (laughs) (laughs) you'd be surprised what some of the questions would have been (laughs) no i love that um yeah actually talking about contemporary um, composers. Uh, I had a guest on my show a few weeks ago, Dr. Erica Ball. I'm not sure if you've come across her work. Um, she's based in the United States. Um, and she is on this mission, I guess, to because she teaches um, piano and violin as well, to, to teach her students that they can play music by people that are alive still. That's her thing, that it's like... <laughs> women and people that are still alive <laughs> and they're like some of her students don't even realize that people are still writing classical music they think it's all stuff by you know people who died hundreds of years ago so that was a really fun conversation how she does that it, that's changing here immensely yeah and i think it's because composers um are promoting their music better mm-hmm I think uh, festivals are promoting their music, and, and one of the one of the exciting things I thought that happened during the pandemic here was, you know, because we were all, you know, sitting in front of our screens at home, it allowed us to to sort of take some steps back and do a little research. Mm. And I was involved with a a, a, a mezzo soprano friend of mine who wanted to put out a weekly um, video of uh, songs written by women composers who were not necessarily uh, household names. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was fascinating because we both researched this together. Uh, we rehearsed it using, you know, uh, th- this thing here. Mm-hmm which had its had its moments yeah um but the fact that you know we we did that i and i was although i knew some names i some of the music is just why is this buried why is nobody playing this yeah yeah and it's happening here there's there's concerts now um a great deal of concerts by uh the african-american female composer florence price who wrote a tremendous stuff was an amazing pianist um where big groups, symphonic groups, um, choral groups are starting to really dig in and, and, and not look at the same stuff that we've been playing for 300 years. Mm. That, although some people do advocate that. Um, I think that bringing this and new music by living composers into the canon of what we do Mm-hmm. is going to sustain classical music and not make it look like just some relic museum piece. Yeah, that uh, is so true. Yeah. Yeah, that's it because it's like it will just stay as something that doesn't evolve, that doesn't change, it isn't challenged and eventually it'll just I don't know, might even get lost somewhere because it hasn't evolved and I don't know. I think it's it's awesome. It's really really good to keep it relevant as well for new audiences and because I think this conversation I had with with Erica was that there is a portion of the audience that desperately wants to hear a song that they know and they recognize but there's also the people that want to challenge that so it's it's also that 
um, that generational shift, you know, that's that will challenge or hold this back. That's been going on for a long time, mm. you know, uh, and it, you mostly see it in or, in in orchestras, mm-hmm. where they know that their donors, their big donors, want to hear Mahler and Beethoven and Brahms, <laughs> and um, will not will not stomach in certain places. Certain cities are are, are different, but it yeah. will not stomach an entire evening of something that they don't recognize or can't understand. Yeah. So in the past, orchestras have sort of mixed programmed a little bit. You know, they, they give the castor oil along with the sugar. Yeah. Um, but that's also changing, you know, where, uh, and they're being very smart about it and using sometimes contemporary living composers who actually show up to these concerts, mm. give a lecture on it, uh, explain it. Yeah. Because I think some, some of that is education. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, it's starting to it's starting to veer off into the choral world. It's starting to veer off into the opera world, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just in in some ways I had a conversation with a, a, a friend. We were talking about the pandemic. Well, because well, let's face it, we're, you know, <laughs> we all talk about the pandemic. Yeah. How th- there would have been no Renaissance if it wasn't for the Black Death. Mm. You know, I mean, the Black Death, the Renaissance was um, uh, was a direct cause of coming out of the Black Death, mm. as the the um, the pandemic of nineteen eighteen, the Roaring Twenties, was a direct cause of coming out of that in the First World War. Mm. And I, I maybe I'm an optimist. I am to a bit, but mm. I think there's going to be a second Renaissance in in the arts for sure because. Mm like you say they've taken such a hit and so they they can't go back to the same way things were done before mm. yeah i would agree with that i hope and i hope that that it challenges the norms of all cultures but my own i really hope because the thing that frustrates me is that creators and artists make everything that you consume you know you wouldn't be able to sit at home and watch your netflix during the pandemic if somebody hadn't come up with the story and the actors you know everybody that goes into making that stuff and everything you touch and like everything has been created by someone and made by someone and designed by someone but we just seem to take it for granted I suppose maybe that's maybe that's what it is um I don't know yeah yeah until it was denied yes you yeah. took it all for granted until they shut theaters down until they shut everything else down yeah. and you had a you had to search for it someplace else. And some of the arts organizations were smart enough, the Metropolitan Opera for one, is that then they started releasing all of their HD uh, videos for free. Yeah, right. Every week, you know. And um, again, thinking of the longer, the longer game, and the longer game is to, is to, to keep this thing going. Mm. Yeah, and perhaps not being precious about, we, you know, like that, that maybe giving up some income, maybe things used to have to be paid for in that way but just because we've always done things a certain way that doesn't mean we have to keep doing them a certain way if we want to evolve and remain relevant and you know reach these audiences that are basically um, a candid audience they're not doing anything else so Hmm. (laughs) pump them full of this stuff and then they love it and then they when they come out they want to consume it even more I um I uh we went to the opera 
um, in September. Um, the Met opened back, you know, opened back up again, and this mm. they decided to open their season with um, a new opera, and it was uh, written um, by the book was written by a columnist for the New York Times. Fire shut up in my bones. If you ever have an opportunity to see the HD video of that, yep. it, it's amazing. Yeah, but the thing that was really amazing is that when this show opened, and as I said, it opened the season, which is unheard of, yep. it was packed. Mm -hmm. And the audience was unlike any audience I've ever seen at any classical concert anywhere yep. in the world. It was just like, first of all, it was an, it was an, an event. And the age differential was huge. Mm. The, the social makeup was huge. Yeah. And I, I've seen, I saw people that I never thought I would see at the Metropolitan Opera. And the place went after, it was, besides the fact that it was an amazing performance. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I thought they were going to rip down the house at the end with the applause. Yeah. It just was incredible. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, shook me um, it's because when a staid institution like the Metropolitan Opera can have the guts to say, no, no, <laughs> things are different. Mm -hmm. We're going to change a little bit of the, the uh, conversation here. I think there's no reason why not everyone else can't also yeah. do this thing. Yeah. That's incredible. Isn't it? Like the risk that they would take doing that, but the payoff has so many, um, sort of flow on effects, not just for them, but for the, how the culture of opera is now, you know, changing and yeah, incredible. The entire company, the yeah. entire production team was African-American. Yeah. Yeah. And the dancing on stage was something that was unlike anything you would have ever seen on the Met stage. And it was just amazing. The band, the orchestra was actually a full symphony orchestra with a band in the middle of it yeah, playing. And the music also had jazz elements, you know, symphonic elements, all sorts of just a, a hodgepodge of great, great stuff. Yeah. I, I just hope they do more of that. Mm. I hope everybody does more of that. Why yeah. not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love it. I sort of feel like ballet is really good at pushing the boundaries. I know the, the Australian ballet here. Um, you know they've they've got to get the they get the balance right from the the, the shows that people want to see the Sleeping Beauties and the Swan Lakes and the Nutcrackers, but then they get and they've been doing it this for for many years getting the people they get people from Europe over to showcase contemporary works and to push the boundaries of what people think ballet is and I think I feel like ballet is really good at doing that and yeah the yes I, I think dance has always been really good at that. Mm. Uh, because the music is, except for those those chestnuts, um, the music could be anything you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. and the style could be anything you really you really want it to be. There's you're not really. I mean, the, people have tried to um, pry loose a little bit of you know our conceived notions of what Nutcracker and Swan Lake should look like. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah. But. For the most part, if you do a contemporary thing, you're not under any constraints to do anything except what that work demands. Mm. But yes, they, they, I think they'd be good with that. And I think ballet audiences are much more receptive to that, even though, you know, I, 
I frankly used to hate going to the ballet. <laughs> <laughs> we call them the white glove crowd here. Okay. <laughs> and so you'd sit in the audience and all of a sudden they take out these little bonbons of the rappers. It's like the most sublime piece of music and you all hear. <laughs> and it would take forever for that thing to get in that woman's mouth. And it was just like, irregardless of, of what was going on, yeah. it just Aww. so I was never a great fan of the audiences of her ballets, but um, it's a great art for sure. We have this concept um, of mum guilt that I talk to my guests about. And mm-hmm. I, I love, I love talk. It sounds bad that I say I love talking to people about their guilt, but I find it really fascinating because everybody has different experiences. Everyone might deal with it differently. Some people don't feel it. Some people feel it a lot. Um, and I like to, when I get the chance to talk about how men feel about that, because your, I say your, a man's role generally is perceived as different to the woman. So it is expected that you mm. might, you know, you leave the home and do what you got to do and that sort of thing. Do you, what's your take on, I guess, I don't want to call it dad guilt because I don't, I don't even like calling it mum guilt, but I call it that just for the hashtag mum guilt, you know. Um, what's your thoughts about all that sort of stuff? I'm not sure I know what you mean by it. Okay. So the way that we talk about mum guilt is that, when you're a mum, you're supposed to do stuff for the children. And then if you do something for yourself, you should feel guilty about that. Or mm. if you don't meet the norms of what society deems as being, a, and I'll put in air quotes again, a good mother, um, you should feel guilty for that. Um, an example that I can give you is um, a, 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 a guest I had on the show went out one night to watch Um, a classical music performance and she was there with her friends and one of the people she met said oh it's such a shame you're missing bedtime um you know it's good that you could come tonight but you're missing putting the kids to bed and she's like why is that a question why are you asking me about bedtime she didn't say this to the person but you know my child has two parents my husband is quite capable of putting the children to bed and I'm quite capable of leaving the house and doing something for myself if that makes sense it does does. um i i guess i can i probably shouldn't answer for my wife but i but you know um certainly when we've been out and i i have to admit that we did not go out much without them yeah right okay that was our choice uh we took them to everything including restaurants Mm -hmm. um and some of it was because we just liked being around them. Yeah. I, and I don't think it was guilt. Mm-hmm. I just think, you know, I, I could probably count on one hand. First of all, babysitters rarely had a babysitter. Mm-hmm. Now, when one of us had to do something or went out, um, I would say that maybe Celia would feel a little, you know, like a, a little bit, I should be home. Mm-hmm. 
but I'm sure it passed fast, especially knowing that I was there. Yeah. yeah. If I wasn't there, then it would have been a different story. If it, we were both out someplace, for sure. Yeah. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I don't know. Uh, guilt is a strong word. Mm. You know, I might think about, you know, where I, what I was doing. And I, I have to say, I, I'm not, I wasn't the kind of guy when the girls were young that did, you know, like went out with the boys and that kind of stuff. I didn't do that at all. I had no intention to doing that. I'm perfectly fine staying home with the girls. <laughs> um, but, you know, like I might think, oh, okay, we'd be having dinner right now or the, you know, the shower time or the bath time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't call it guilt. Yeah. You know, uh, my, as you said, you know, like our, our, the generation of our parents, they had to give up stuff. And I'm sure that, you know, like my mother never went out on her own. Yeah. And my father who was in the restaurant business was out every night working. Yeah. Didn't come home until two, three in the morning. Mm. So I, I wish they almost did some stuff for them, yeah. you know, uh, but you know, I, I, I almost, I almost wonder about that. And it, it just, it, it's sort of a foreign thing. I understand why people might think that it, I, it's hard for me to, to kind of think, put myself in there. Um, because for one, we took them everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, we, the first time they went to Europe to see my family and excuse me, other places, one of them was five years old, four years old, you know, like, I mean, those kids went, went traveling more than most. Yeah. Uh, they went to restaurants since they were a very, very early age. Yeah. Uh, and we just, we wanted, we loved being around each other. Yeah. And it wasn't like to be with her mom or her sisters, uh, I'm sure maybe she felt a little, but I'm sure it passed quickly when she was with her sisters or, yeah. or whoever. Um, yeah. And I, I never felt that, you know, I mean, I, I was out a lot, you know, like I was a church musician. So, you know, it, it, I never felt that unless I was out for an extended period of time, like when I would do summers in Rome, I was yeah. a five, five weeks, six weeks. Yeah, yeah I did for sure. I did, yeah. you know, uh, because I knew all of it fell on, on Celia. Mm, yeah. You no, know, uh, and I wasn't there to sort of pick up the slack. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah. No, thank you for answering that. I know it's, I feel, I don't know, it's something that fascinates me. But again, I, I, I know I want to be respectful when I ask people about things like that because, you know, it's a bit of a, you're asking people to tell, you know, really private things about themselves. So I appreciate you indulging me. Well, I, I, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I think people who, who, who will listen to this should think there's, this is, these are questions that, you know, are there and other people have coped with this before mm. and are coping with it now. It's not like a new thing. It's not. Mm. And, you know, like with anything else, we, you know, like your, um, your story, um, about feeling bad because she's, you know, missing mum time. Yeah. 
I mean, that, that, that's something you put on yourself. That's not, that's not, you create, you can create your own thing, you know? And I think in this, in this age that we're in now, people respect when you create your own thing and you're, and you're strict with it. Perhaps 40 years ago, no. You know, they'd yeah. question whether you were a good mother if you were out, you know. But that to me seems something that is more in someone someone's demanding of themselves rather than it's coming from outside mm. yeah i think i feel like social media has had this impact of of showing us so many different elements of people's lives that allows us to compare elements of our own lives with them but i think what we have to remember is that what people place on social media is very curated and they're generally only showing the best bits um and so it's like the advent of social media has allowed more comparison and I think allowed more people to question themselves. Um, I don't know. And am I doing it right? Or what are people going to think if I do this or, you know, whereas I think sometimes it's better just to do what works for your family and, and stay really insular in your thoughts and not think about what's happening, you know, across. Yeah. The <laughs> uh, last I checked, there was no manual. <laughs> there's no degree on any of this and yeah. and there's no one way you know um and so i you know we i think we all come into this thing uh with obviously what we were brought up with knowing what worked and what didn't work or what we want to imitate and what we, we certainly don't want to imitate yeah. and and then we go from there and, and and it's a partnership for one it's not just one person deciding that uh, yeah. I, I know some families where it is all only one person and frankly they're dysfunctional um, and so in some sense, you know, like to me, bringing up children and also create a household idea is it's creative because it, 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 it's based on the, on the two of you. And it's also based on what, you know, your children's needs, et cetera. And there's no one way. Mm. I don't think there is, you know? Oh yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. Definitely agree with that. Have you got anything, any projects coming up or anything you want to share about that you might have in the works or anything at all, really? Yeah, uh, it's a little slow for me getting back right now because some of the things that I was involved with are, are taking their time coming back. Um, I've been, I'm playing more, which is good. Yeah. Uh, the conducting is coming a little slow. Uh, right now, I'm, I, I was supposed to do conduct on Giovanni in Romania before this pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm kind of like in a, in a negotiation, trying to get that either in June or possibly in September. Um, but I don't have any um, pressing things at the moment. Uh, in some ways, that's good. Well, my oldest daughter is getting married in, in 
October, and so that is pressing. <laughs> yes, that's pretty important. <laughs> yes, it, 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 that is pressing. But in terms of artistic stuff, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I am revisiting Don Giovanni just in case I do call to do that in um, June because it's a pretty big, pretty big work. Um, I'd like to get that off of my back and off my off the table <laughs> and move on to other things. But um, that's uh, yeah. I mean that that that's. As as of right now, it, my my modus operandi is the you know when when the things come in, jump on them. <laughs> so I have no real plans. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I hope that some of the smaller theaters that I was working in will start coming back. You know, the, the problem is is that they were unwilling to commit to performance venues because they weren't sure they're going to get closed again. Mm, yes. Yeah. And. Um, you know, the beauty is living an hour outside of New York, but also the problem is, is I'm an hour outside of New York. And so anybody in New York can gobble up whatever it is very quickly. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, but that, that's okay. You know, I, it, stuff, things will come back and perhaps things will come back that where I can go back picking and choosing what I want. I, I, I'm done with just grabbing anything that, that comes along, no matter how miserable it is. You know? Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, you can do it because you want to do it and you're passionate about it. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to take a step back a little bit, actually, and, you know, to think a little bit more about all this and study a little bit more about all this. And um, and then we'll see. Yeah. Oh, good on you. Thank you so much for, for being a part of this, this special Father's Day episode. I'm very, very grateful for your time and for your candor and your honesty and I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you, John. I enjoyed our chat too. It was, it was fun. And good luck to you and keep singing. Thank you so much. Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review, following or subscribing to the podcast, or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum.